Alrighty, folks, you are listening to Talking Shit with Frozy, you bastard, the show about who the fuck knows, but anything goes. Now, folks, we're just about to dive into the second part of our interview with Prof, but before we do, I'd just like to put out a content warning out there for the masses. Now, obviously, if you do require a content warning, it is advised that you switch off now. No judgment, of course, just switch off. I will now give the obligatory 10 seconds to take whatever device you are using and switch off now. Alrighty, for those of you who are still listening, uh, the content you are being warned about is in fact a passing reference to sexual assault, aka rape. Now folks, it has not gone into graphic detail or anything, it is just a passing reference, but I still felt the need to warn anyone out there that might find it harmful. So without any further ado, we shall get on with the interview, and uh, stay tuned for what is one hell of a story, folks. Uh, The other possible squat was a stately home on the corner of Park Lane and Piccadilly just across the park from the, the Queen Buckingham Palace wow. uh, had been the home of, uh, it was actually originally the home of Lord Palmerston and uh, had been the Queen Mother's dancing school and uh, uh, and it was it was empty, but it wasn't technically properly a squat because it I mean it had running water and power and things. They couldn't really turn the power off because they had the substation in the basement that supplied the whole of west uh, the west end. So, wow. <laughs> uh, anyway, we sort of moved a hundred odd bit of commune people in there, and uh, it's uh, it was it was a forty room mansion had uh, marble fireplaces and uh, it was a gorgeous house Uh, and uh, everything went all right for a sort of week or so and then so gradually sort of various disruptive elements came in and then oh and then the police the uh, press got hold of it right so the the final day in there there'd have been uh, about four or five hundred people in the house. There were Hell's Angels. I mean, the Hell's Angel thing had gone sort of. There were all kinds of people wearing colours by that time. It had completely sort of exploded. And they were, the Hell's Angels inside were having a running battle with uh, hun- a couple of hundred skinheads outside on the streets. And uh, it was, uh, there were, so there'd been so more than a hundred pressmen in the wandering around the house wrecking stuff and so showing the mess the hippies were making of this beautiful stately home. Oh, right. I mean I mean the place was going to be demolished otherwise. I mean it was uh, it has been demolished since it's a so just a big monstrosity now. But uh but yeah, oh yeah and there was uh, because of the electricity substation was down in the base, there's a servant's lift working. But there was uh, someone riding up and down in the servants' lift with, uh, with a with a gun. Uh, one assumes there's some sort of security guy right, right, securing the oh, substation in the basement. But uh, it so uh, got very wild, yes, and uh, and eventually they sort of uh, uh, most of the con- 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 the straight con people. I mean we. We got up to a couple of hundred 
commune people in there and then at the end the sort of most of most went to uh, uh, back to the school which I carried on squatting at the school and about 80 of us who actually stayed in the on the top floor of uh, Piccadilly sort of barricading ourselves off against the rest of the place <laughs> and uh, like three days in a row I had the sort of my door kicked into the room and the sort of TV cameras came zooming around and I just yeah it was just total chaos and then when that when the police eventually marched in they uh, so they were trying to arrest everyone for something uh, I was uh, lucky and I've been uh, collecting the uh, mail for the commune which had been coming to a post-restaurant and under a name of one of the sort of the lecturers at Cambridge and uh, uh, so I had his driver's license so that I could <laughs> collect the mail and uh, so they had me oh you've got somebody else's driver's license here and then when they checked up it was all legit so they sort of let me out and a few people got let out but a lot of people just got thrown in prison and they sort of forgot about the habeas corpus for a while there and people were disappearing all around and but uh, but we had the other we had the other squat like a couple of days later the Angel Street cut school squat got taken out as well and the few had and now on Russell Street, there's a few other squats all that sort of went down about the same time. And it got to the sort of stage where it used to be that you could have a squat in England and uh, the uh, authorities had to go through this whole sort of court procedure that took months to, to actually get people legally out. I mean, usually they just march out and, like, if you weren't properly barricaded, people would get thrown out very quickly but uh, uh, if you're going to go through the legal process it took months whereas after Piccadilly it was like so they sped up the whole process and it became very difficult to squat at all. Uh, Phil's reaction was quite strange he took uh, oh while he was at while we were on we're trying to say no leaders so everyone who spoke to the press spoke under the name of uh, John Moffat, who was the, the the guy from Cambridge, and uh, but very soon Phil got sort of singled out as being the proper John Moffat, and uh, uh, and there were a few other sort of people who spoke to the press under their own names, but generally everyone just said, "Oh, I'm John Moffat. I'm John Moffat." And, uh, the result that when the police came in, they weren't quite sure who was running the thing and who wasn't. So, and it's just a matter after that of everyone sort of making scarce. Phil is still totally involved with the whole sort of social thing in, in London. That's still happening. But uh, he, so at that stage, he had this idea that he'd sort of call the squatting part London Street Commune and the happening part... Uh, reclaim the streets, which uh, was the sort of wrong way round. Uh, sorry, no, he said we'd have the yeah. yeah. It got it got muddled up anyway. Sorry, I've left that one up there. So the, the, the yeah, initially it had been that the street commune had been a uh, 
happening thing, and then it's sort of the the, the squatting commune part sort of came in after, but then after after we got chucked out, and he sort of made the squatting part called commune of the streets, which didn't help because that was the bit that the whole press and everyone was really up against. And the happening part was the reclaim the streets, which so had a few other sort of goes along the years and got quite big much later. It's a bit difficult to explain that one. I just kind of get some words to work it out. But <laughs> take it off. Mm, yeah. Right. So as I say, we had a, a, a the series of big squats closed down in quick succession. And uh, the police seriously after us, uh, we were sort of uh, mostly sort of worked out and into smaller squats, sort of uh, split up a whole lot. Uh, Phil had this idea to uh, divide up so that the happening part became Reclaim the Streets and uh, the squatting part became... uh, uh, Sydney, uh, London Street Commune, which uh, didn't really work very well because, uh, of course, the press was really down on the Street Commune thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was like, I mean, we weren't standard squatters that saw. <laughs> we were just a bunch of kids who needed, needed some place to stay and were sort of using squatting, but it wasn't like the, there was a respectable so-called squatting movement sort of finding homes. There were so many empty homes in Britain after the war. They were just everywhere that were empty buildings, um, mostly in seriously bad condition. But, uh, um, but there were a lot of people who really needed them as well. Um, but we were, we were just having a party. It was not so... It wasn't... Really, I mean, we we could we were young kids. We could have crashed out just about anywhere. We gen- quite often did. I mean, <laughs> like in in the summer, we were just crashing out on the beaches, and so of course, then then the council had uh, rangers with dogs and things going around moving people on, and Ooh. it was <laughs> like it was difficult, but uh, but. Uh, we did things. We got together because we're yeah we're having a party. <laughs> um, it was, uh, but at this stage, like it started to get to the stage where I had to leave the country. Was uh, and uh, so I decided. Decided the uh, initial idea was oh well let's head over to India. And uh, I sort of uh, did a month's work, got a few dollar, a few pounds together, very small amount of money together to start off with. I uh, had a going away party, and uh, at the party there was a girl, Julie, who was always. Uh, uh, decided she was going to come along too, and had be girls, and uh, so the two of us sort of travelled up. We saw it was just 
got to Europe and it was sort of super cold. So I thought, oh, well, let's just head down to Morocco until the uh, weather gets a bit better. And uh, I was, and we've been in Morocco for, oh, I suppose the first fun thing was uh, Ceuta, which was uh, like at that stage, so you go from Spain across to Spanish Morocco. And then there's a sort of border where I got there and the border was closed. And, and there's all these uh, smugglers sort of going back and forth along the beach. And you've got these sort of the uh, spotlights going across and, uh, and they're all sort of just ducking under the floodlights. And <laughs> <laughs> so we actually ended up going into Morocco and having a bit of a party and then coming back to go through the customs the next day. This is the border that's now sort of uh, barricaded against the whole of Africa now. It's got sort of serious razor wire and stuff across there. But, but uh, no, so we got down to Rabat, capital, and uh, there was uh, we met a young Moroccan guy who sort of says, oh, Look, there's a sort of a beach there where you'd be able to camp out, and uh, went down there, and we were sort of attacked. A couple of dark guys attacked us, uh, raped the girl, and uh, stole everything. Well, and and uh, it was uh, strange. So I mean, we saw we, when we saw went to the police, went to the. Uh, Embassy and that's uh, how there's nothing. The only thing we can do is you can give you a first class ticket back to Britain and then you have to pay it off when you get back. And that's uh, how things were at that time. I said, No, no thank you, that we just sort of cope along. I mean, Julie was sort of coping, she says, Oh, was just saw something that happens to hippie chicks. <laughs> so, like, it's got men are like that all the time. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, and I was sort of finding like we sort of lost all our possessions. We still had our passports. Luckily, they sort of like the passports were sort of buried in scuffle in the sand and, uh, and she had her sort of bag, but no, so we'd lost all our sort of money and all our possessions. So we're just right on the street at that stage. And then we weren't sort of coping with us too. And so, so I mean, we were into partnership anyway, but we were sort of, we were just traveling together and it was, uh, uh, we went on down to Marrakesh and, and we sort of went our separate ways from there and actually met up about four months later and we're sort of both still travelling around Morocco and both of us going along quite nicely but it was sort of like it was pretty hard at that time and yeah. uh, I moved into the caravan Sai which was very amazing in uh, Morocco, you've got, and uh, Marrakesh, sorry, you've got this, the, the Gemafino, which is this big marketplace in the centre of town where all the sort of the tourist things happen, but all the sort of, they have street performers and all these sort of things happening. And then they all stay, and the caravan sort of inside just for a few cents a night, uh, you get a spot of floor space 
and it's just sort of like it's lines and lines of people all sort of sleeping next to each other and and then this big barn of a place with sort of camels and stuff at one side and big people doing their performances and uh, rehearsals for their day and they're sort of still doing their market stuff and uh, but you have, you have, the thing is you have guards who sort of watch over everyone where they're sleeping which was really it was really important to, so not had really anything to steal at that time but so so I sort of basically was in the sort of position of a beggar from them on so I travelled round uh, Morocco for say a few months there and it was quite interesting it went from different I mean it went from sort of the beggar on the street then so I met up with some wealthy uh, uh, American and British Muslims who'd uh, uh, rented a palace from uh, the King of Morocco. Uh, so beautiful, so villa, white villa with peacocks and swimming pools and wow. all the works. And uh, so sort of went stayed with them for a few days and they sort of teaching me a bit about Islam and uh, then uh, they had to go off back to their countries and left me left me begging on the street one moment and I was sort of living in this palace by myself for a couple of days until the rent ran out <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and going across the road to the next palace which was the Prince of Laos who was having par par parties over there and right. and uh, and then of course when the lease finished then I was sort of back on the street begging again and uh, I decided well okay well now spring's here time to head off to India again and oh first let's go and have a look at the desert went down to the far south of uh, Morocco and said oh there's this little village it's just a few miles over the desert so that's nice we'll sort of uh, wander over and have a look at the little village in the desert and then wander back again and head off to India uh, a week later still, oh, I said yeah I had a, a jar of sugar a bottle of sugar and a bottle of with a glass jam jar of water <laughs> and uh, this was not really preparation for going across the Sahara no. uh, a week later I was still walking it turned out that the village was like 150 miles across the desert right. and uh, by that stage it was either a matter of going on to the capital of Spanish Sahara or sort of walking back the way I'd come and uh, Finally ended up like sort of three months later, sort of emerging from the southern end of the Sahara. <laughs> but, uh, but it was, uh, in the meantime, yeah, a couple of times I got sort of severely dehydrated. But mostly I was sort of with the people, which was amazing. And that so, uh, you'd be walking across the desert and you'd find a, see a encamp nomad encampment, the Berbers there. And... Uh, the idea is you sort of you you sit on the outskirts, and uh, a particular distance from the tents, and then uh, someone will come out from the tents, and if they sort of greet you and they invite you in, and then uh, 
Uh, they basically give you food and water and hospitality for three days as a standard Muslim hospitality. Uh, in this case, I so find a desert encampment, and they also uh, you see, and all the people are sort of running off into the distance in the other way. I've never seen anyone with uh, what I have very pale skin and very pale hair, and it was just uh, <laughs> just so strange that uh, by that time I had a I had the Moroccan clothes, I had a burnous and. Moroccan clothing I was wearing, but uh, it uh, took a while. They thought I was a djinn. And what's a djinn? Genie. Oh, a genie. Right. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, 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 it took time. Once I got to meet them, then uh, initially they decided I must be a friendly djinn, and uh, so it was a. Uh, <laughs> But uh, generally, someone from one tent encampment would walk with me across the desert to the next one, and so make the way across the desert like that. Uh, oh. but, uh, and and now I didn't walk all the way. There were some parts where there were so trucks and things going. There was one, uh, so one section actually. So I ended up getting uh, a boat across to. Um, uh, Canaries and back, which was pretty horrendous at that time because that was part of some Franco's time, oh. and uh, so, so it was a bit dangerous for someone with no money there. And so, I luckily, managed to get on the sort of boat back down to the coast a bit further down. And uh, then there was a sort of a, a train that sort of was taking the iron more, so I sort of took a train out into the middle of the desert and. Then sort of got off and started walking again. Um, it was a very weird sort of place altogether. It's extraordinary. Uh, it's mostly rocky deserts. There were a few ergs and sand deserts, but mostly it was sort of rocks, but there'd be rock plateaus and sort of the s stacks of rock and sort of all sorts of strange sand mountains. Uh, just ordinary the barkin, but it's also behold the things like I look like a whole golf ball, just the whole sort of big dome of sand, and there's some really strange things out there. And you saw me just wandering along, and there's other sort of people wandering around in the desert. You saw you're wandering through, and you've got sort of like just total open from horizon to horizon, and there'll be this sort of Toreg comes trundling, galloping along on his full speed on his camel and he sort of appears from the horizon on one side and flies across in front of you and disappears on the <laughs> horizon on the other side and yeah it was a very strange place to be altogether but I did get quite dehydrated out there a couple of times and from then on I was sort of having a bit of trouble with my kidneys from there on so we didn't really know it was that at the time but starting to get a bit of sickness there but, but I got out of through Mauritania and into, I wasn't following the main sort of trail down the middle, I was sort of basically following the coast, so was with Spanish Sahara was there then and then Mauritania. Uh, into Senegal, Gambia, then came down through West Africa, which was beautiful, but West Africa's lovely. It's a bit strange again because travel at beg with travelling with a begging bowl. Uh, 
was really wonderful. I mean, the hospitality was fabulous. But it was so it was just totally, totally at the mercy of what was going to happen at any time, which was pretty amazing. And and then the main problem was getting to the bar- the borders, because all the countries wanted visas and they wanted production of to show you you got money. Get to boundary where look you got no visa, you got no money. So well, I've got no visa, and no money for where I've just come from. So I'm going to have to stay here, and I'd have these sit-ins at every border, <laughs> and mostly sort of 20 minutes, half an hour. They say, "Oh look, they can't be bothered with this. Go on in." They were very hospitable, but uh, going into uh, from uh, Ivory Coast to Ghana, uh, I was. Uh, Stuck at the in no man's land for a week. Uh, between uh, Cameroon, uh, Dahomey, and Nigeria, I was stopped for nine weeks. Uh, but that was basically uh, when they did eventually let me in. I was the first Westerner in after the Biafran War, oh. so <laughs> there was still sort of quite a bit of fighting going on too. It was very much a a local skirmish in that sort of, I mean, the uh, Ebo had come from the far east of the country and gone right across pretty much to Lagos in the west in the first few weeks of the war and then the rest of the war was a tactical retreat. But in the middle you've got the River State, Port Harcourt, this is all like little, it's the delta of the Niger, so you've got all these little rivers all sort of going out every few every few yards there's another river going across and every every bridge got blown up in the tactical retreat so you had to have dugouts to get across the they got these big dugouts with like a dozen people in and you generally find there was sort of like a boat full of ebos and one houser and the houser would go over the side or there'd be a boat full of houser and one ebo and the ebo would go over the side and there was still sort of quite a lot of skirmishes going on and uh, the war was officially sort of well over and and uh, when I was leaving the capital of uh, Biafra I sort of sort of just walking out of town and there's this guy with, with, with a gun, you get back, I shoot, and he would have too, so mm. <laughs> about to, okay, about to. <laughs> Alrighty, folks, that concludes part two of our interview with Prof. Now, if you've enjoyed what you're listening to, feel free to click the like, click the subscribe, and, of course, if you think anyone else would enjoy hearing this absolutely wild story, uh, of course, click the share button. Now, of course, if I've actually bothered to get any socials up by then, might as well click them too and uh, follow along with that. But uh, in the meantime, folks, uh, I suppose stay tuned for episode three. Cheers.